I'm Tia. I'm Lauren. I'm Eleanor. And this is the Journey to Transformation. Yay, welcome. Welcome to the van. <laughs> Thank you for very having nice me. to have you here. <laughs> we are joined by Eleanor Gibson, the founder of Tilt, a team of coaches who help leaders, teams, and organizations unlock creativity, growth, and impact. Tilt have been working with some of the UK's most innovative charity teams from marketing to program delivery to growth and income, becoming more user-focused and to embed agile ways of working. Incredible. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) So tell us about your journey, uppercase J or lowercase J. Up to you. Oof, I love a good journey. My personal journey starts as a community fundraiser at Cancer Research UK. So I was driving my Astra around the northwest <laughs> of England, going to often fundraising groups, individuals who were raising money for Cancer Research UK saying, thank you so much. Would you like to do it again next year? How can I help you to raise even more? I almost think of it as like a traveling saleswoman, but raising money, more money for charity. And then I started managing projects and the projects started getting wackier, more risky, less certain. And then I moved into what was formerly called an innovation team. After delivering maybe three projects, I noticed that often the pieces of work we were delivering weren't really doing what they were meant to. Either we were continuing to kind of flog a dead horse because it was somebody important's idea or because we really liked it ourselves or we felt like it should work when actually the evidence was that it didn't. And sometimes the good ideas weren't really getting off the ground because they were too complex or tricky in some way. About that time, I started hanging out with lots of people in the digital and technology teams at Cancer Research UK and they were talking about lean startup, agile ways of working. And I thought, hmm, this feels like it could be helpful. So I read the book Lean Startup by Eric Ries and a couple of other books and started applying these ways of approaching work to my innovation work and found it had much better results. So now that's what I and Tilt do is help charities across the sector to apply these fresher ways of working so they can have more impact, not just in innovation projects, but also in all of the work that they do, but especially when they're operating in a world of heightened uncertainty. Sounds about right for now. (laughs) I'm feeling really uncertain right now. Uncertain, angry, sad. One of the above. Full disclosure, I don't know if I understand what agility is and probably because I'm so embedded in charity ways of working. My background is monitoring evaluation. I'm so embedded in all those processes and frameworks. That's definitely not agile working. No, no, it's not. (laughs) It's heavy log frames. I mean, you know, I know from your website that you talk about it not being something you do, but something that kind of you are. So tell us more. How do you get there? What is it? Such a good question. Agile working is all about setting up your organization to be adaptable, to be able able to respond to what your supporters or what your users need and to deliver more quickly with less. So that's exactly the environment that we're working in. The world is becoming less predictable. Change is happening more quickly because of technology, climate change, etc. So Agile Ways of Working are all about setting up your organisation to be able to deliver in this environment. That's really helpful. And I think something else that stood out for me is that messy or 
or saying that we can't do messy is a red flag. So how does that fit into it? Because there's a lot of things that resonate there for me in terms of this, oh my God, it's messy. I don't know if we can get involved in that. And it seems to be there's a fear of being, I don't know, messy in the sector when actually we work in very complex environments. It's messy from day one, but people are just not comfortable with that. So does agile ways of working help you approach being messy, I guess? Definitely. I personally feel it reflects reality better. As you said, Lauren, we operate in a messy world. Everything is complex and nuanced. And the way organisations have been set up previously is in a very organised, structured way, which implies control and clarity. But actually, we're learning more and more. That just means things are happening around the sides. Often, value isn't actually being delivered. We're just working in a way that's seems organised. So examples might be organisations tracking outputs rather than outcomes. So that outputs things we're delivering, number of reports written, number of people spoken to, feels like you can get your hands around it. You can be clear whether you are delivering against that measure or not. But are you actually delivering the value, the change on the ground or the learning or the impact that you want to, that's much harder often, as you'll know, Lauren, to track. And it is messier and more complex. So yes, Agile Ways of Working are all about embracing the messy, but finding ways to measure forward movement through it. One of the key ways it does that is through encouraging experimentation. So it comes from a place of we don't know where my sense is perhaps more old school ways of working come from the place of we've been doing this for 50 years and we know we on the board, we as the leadership team know what you on the ground need, a kind of colonial mindset. And what I love about agile ways of working is it acknowledges that those are all assumptions. Some of them may be right based on significant experience and some of them are likely to not be correct and the best way to learn which is which is to run quick experiments to gather validated on the ground insight from the people that you're interested in to work out where you're at and what you should do next. It's so interesting to me because agile and lean ways of working, we commonly associate them with the private sector. The conversation that I often have with charities or folks that work in charities is this sense that it's great that that works in the private sector. Can it work here? Or that's interesting. That's fair enough if you work in software development. I don't see how it can work here. So a lot of the work that we do at Tilt is showcasing case studies of where charities have applied this, especially in teams that you wouldn't maybe expect it because our belief and our experience is that it works everywhere in any department, in any area of a charity. But I think probably like as with all change, there's always a pushback. Change is so scary, not just because it means changing our behaviours. It's about changing how we measure our own value to ourselves. Mm. I think about that walk home when we all used to walk home after work. <laughs> when I used to walk home and you're kind of going, hmm, did I have a good day today? Did I do well today? Did I, especially in the charity sector, did I do good today? Those values that we use to decide that for ourselves, we're asking people to adapt those mm. and change those. It's a really big thing that we're driving. And so I think sometimes very early on organisationally and individually we put up the barriers to go no I'm not I'm not willing to assess whether the values that I'm using to assess myself are, are up for grabs or not yeah it's big 
I do think we have a hard time translating into different languages as a sector. So there was a big push in project management where everyone was using PMD Pro, Project Management for Development Professionals, and that was one of the standards. And then there was another one that came along, which is PRINCE2, Projects in Controlled Environments. And that's much more of a private sector approach. And as organizations started to wrestle with these things, there was that conversation of, well, this language doesn't work for us in this sector. It doesn't, how do we understand how this fits the language of development or humanitarianism. I mean, organizations did it. So you can do it, people. You can do it. You can try something different and learn a new language. And now when I look at job descriptions, Prince 2 is one of the main things on those descriptions. And you don't very much see PMD Pro on there anymore, though. Big shout out to Humentum because I think they're great. And that's where I did my my PMD Pro training. So thanks. You don't see it as much. I was just having very similar thoughts about the language because Agile comes with design sprints and you know sometimes job titles like scrum master and I'm like oh I don't know what this is. I remember the first time I saw a scrum master position it's actually where Lauren and I used where we met I was like scrum master. Yeah, it's like, what is this? <laughs> Sounds sexy. <laughs> it's a really good point. We try very hard at Tilt to cut through that jargon and not use it too much because it adds to that feeling that we've talked about before of kind of oh that's for someone else it's for the private sector it's not for me it's it's too confusing it also adds to a feeling of us or them or either you're agile or you're not which we definitely want to blast out of the water we spend a lot of time trying to concentrate on describing things rather than using jargon so instead of scrum master we might say the person that's facilitating this workshop it's hard but that's one way in which we try to move things along without making it too much of a leap I want to talk a little bit now about mindset shifts. You very helpfully sent over a diagram from ThoughtWorks, mindset shifts for organization transformation. The diagram sets out a kind of journey (laughs) (laughs) that is all about moving from the left-hand side of the diagram to the right. So away from a focus on profit towards a focus on purpose, away from hierarchies to networks, from controlling to empowering, from planning to experimentation and from privacy to transparency. You can apply this at an individual human level in terms of how you work. You could apply this at a team level or an organisational level and Tilt do support organisations and teams to do all three. This mindset shift, you could call it agile transformation. You can call it digital transformation. I'm so interested in how it overlaps with anti-racism and gender transformation that you're both driving in our sector. I think it can, can and should work together with them. But the first one, from profit to purpose, I often think of as moving from output focus to outcome focus to thinking about rather than what are we doing to what difference are we making and that's where I think agile ways of working have the biggest impact is a continual focus on value so often teams that you see working in an agile way or organizations that are working in an agile way are working towards a really specific vision of the difference that they want to make and they're really measuring against that rather than against what they're doing um, or how they're doing it. it's all about where they're getting to the 
second one, moving from hierarchies to networks. So this is about how decisions are made within organisations or teams. So historically, information has been passed, decisions have been made through hierarchies. And what Agile Ways of Working encourage is instead a networked approach. So it's all about putting people who are doing the work in touch with each other cross-functionally so that they can share useful information in pursuit of this specific goal. Moving from controlling to empowering, this is a really big one. So we've touched on it before, but historically, this kind of command and control approach has been how we've run organisations, projects, pieces of work. And instead, moving to a place where small cross-functional teams are empowered to deliver against that original organisational vision is the way in which in this ever more unpredictable world is the best way to set yourself up to be able to deliver against that vision. That's the one I struggle with the most because I do enjoy a bit of control. Mm, We all do. And that's actually the one that often when we're working with leadership, individuals and teams is the hardest because we are so used to having control. We we think that's the role of a manager or leader is to have control. So someone that I see doing this very well is Carmen Barlow, who we worked with at Amnesty International UK. And what was great about the way that they set the digital engagement team up to work in a more agile way wasn't that she had no visibility or no control it was that she had the same opportunities as the rest of the team to see an idea as it grew as they experimented as they built it piece by piece so that her input looked different it was less about control and it was more about regular sight of where it was going at which point she could make suggestions she could input she could pull in the information that she had from her wider understanding of the organization in her role as head of Does that make sense? Yeah. But it's one of the biggest challenges that we come across with leadership is is letting go of control. But what we find is that when leadership teams do let go of control and instead focus on empowering, coaching their teams, building networks, so much of their time is freed up Mm. to do these things that we're always hearing they want to do. Think about strategy, collaborate with their other senior stakeholders, collaborate outside of their organisation, uncover new opportunities. A lot of this is resonating because this is the battle that Lauren and I are having in the moment. <laughs> oh yeah, tell me more. <laughs> I'm always saying, oh, I just wish I had space to think, or I wish I could just like, I just don't have any more room in my head. And it's that real tension for me of being comfortable controlling pieces of things, mm. because as a process thinker, as a systems thinker, I can see a whole landscape and see kind of how those things fit together. And it's a really hard thing for me to practice of letting go of that mm. and saying, that's how I see it but that mm. might not be how Lauren sees it or how Lauren understands what's going on mm. maybe we, we need are you to cry no. <laughs> like I was going to cry a bit. I was going to say maybe we need to move from a hierarchy to a network <laughs> I didn't even realise we were in a hierarchy because you don't listen so. <laughs> but I guess you know if you're going from a hierarchy to a network controlling to empowering they reinforce each other right like if yeah. you let go of the hierarchy then presumably you're hopefully letting go from control as well mm. and what helps little tip for you here too. We've talked a lot about what you're letting go of in these situations and instead what can be really helpful that we talk to leadership a lot about is 
your job as a, an agile leader is to really focus on holding and building the vision, the outcome, what's going to be different, bringing that to life in lots of different ways for the people around you. And that's where you're focused rather than focusing on how instead you empower the people around you to and give them space and get out the way, which Kate Grock talked about as well. Get get out the way so that they can work out how they're going to deliver it and what they're going to do. So maybe it's about a mindset shift. (laughs) (laughs) The vision. All right, I'll give it a try. And then uh, Lauren can just check back and give you you the report card. (laughs) (laughs) So the fourth mindset shift is one of my favorites from planning to experimentation. I'd love to hear your reflections on this too. So... Some people might describe this as a as one of the key differences between a Prince 2 approach and an Agile approach is rather than having a detailed long-term plan at the beginning, instead saying, we understand the world of unpredictable things are going to change that are unexpected. We don't know quite how this is going to work because we're working in a complex environment. Let's instead have a really clear vision and start running small experiments to make our way towards that vision, see what works. So it builds in both the message but finds a way to make that empirical by running experiments. So there's lots of guidance that we spend time giving to teams around how to run great tests. It's not just having a go and seeing what happens. It's naming the assumption that you're making, running a specific experiment with people on the ground to see whether that assumption is correct or not. Setting a measure ahead of time so that you are committing to what success or failure looks like or what it will look like if your assumption is, is correct or not and then running a specific experiment and then checking back in afterwards, then running another test to build on top of that. What do you think? I saw you doodling. <laughs> yeah, just a little note. Um, <laughs> yeah, I have so much to say about this. <laughs> For me, like this kind of is, so we've talked in, about the theory of change in previous episodes. And for me, this is kind of the difference between, you know, a theory of change being like a static, here's how we're going to get to our impact. And then putting agile on top of it and adding that kind of nice experiment along the way. And I feel like that's, what's missing no one comes in with a mindset of oh let's experiment let's see if this assumption is true or not at least from my perspective there's not really space given to doing those kinds of experiments you know it's more of a here's our outputs outcomes are our theory of change we measure it kind of that's it but that that ability to experiment i think is really missing the only space that i've ever had in any role to experiment is when i've been project managing things called innovation labs And that's the only space that an organization will give you to do pilots, micro pilots, to think about it from that perspective. I guess I'm curious about what that tension looks like, how you get, you know, how you deal with that with your donors and funders, because what you're fundamentally doing is saying, I don't know. And that is one it's okay not to know. You didn't know before you did something wild. So you definitely don't know. You're just now you're just being honest. I just think there's a space of how do we continue this movement of reality based, honest thinking? Because the thing that we all know, but we aren't saying out loud is that we don't know how things are going to work. No matter what you write in that proposal, it's all just a guess. So how do we get the people who give us money, the organizations who give us money comfortable with the fact that we we don't really know. 
It's true. I, I wonder if there's sort of the word experiment, you know, there's a real kind of like, oh, what does that mean? There's no good word for it. Experiment, practice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a really good point. And that's the next frontier, if you like, is how do we get the people that are putting money into our sector and making decisions at the very top of our sector comfortable with the fact that, as you said, Tia, the reality is we don't know. We spent a long time making documents that make it seem like we do. And instead, we need to understand where those gaps are. It's a really good question. And I think it's the next horizon to tackle. What we're finding at Tilt is there's pockets of folks who are up for this, often when it naturally fits their approach or they're finding that their current approach isn't working. But I would love us to be having conversations with donors around this stuff. And Roxanne Hargreaves, who is the COO of a very small new charity called Reseed, who are taking an agile approach to program delivery on the ground in Sierra Leone, chatted to me about this. And she was saying that's what needs to change is we need to be having more open conversations with our donors that are focused around these mindset shifts, talking about the vision and co-creating an idea of where they want to get to, thinking about some experiments that they might run and measures of success rather than trying to nail down the how and the what, because that's not the reality of how we're going to have the most impact. Another thing that is really important that we don't do enough and I'd love us to see doing more of is having meaningful conversations about risk. So I imagine the reason that experimentation feels scary for donors and for those that are making decisions is it sounds risky. We might do something wrong. We might lose money. The risk is that it doesn't work. What that doesn't take into account and that I'd love us to be talking about more is the risk of continuing as we are and not delivering against our goals. Because I think there's probably a huge amount of that because we're not clear on what outcome we want. And instead, we're measuring these nice controllable outputs. So having more of those conversations and showing both sides of the risk seesaw yeah. balance yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. is what I'd love to see us doing more. Well, because when we think about risk, it, risk is uncertainty. It's we don't know. It could be amazing. It could be horrible. And I think what we do in when we're managing risk is trying to, you know, minimize one and maximize the other. But what often happens is we just think about the horrible, scary bits of things because mm. it's OK to not know is the kind of the point. But it's how you absorb that and mm. recognize that just because you aren't sure doesn't mean that's the terrible thing. You aren't sure, but it could be amazing. Mm. It's a really good point that. I guess what we're kind of talking around is that you could see this as all these structures that we're currently using are not bringing to life enough the risk that is inherent in the work that we do, the failure that's inherent in the work that we do. And as you said, it would just be normalising the fact that there's a lot of failure happening all over the place. Better to be set up to recognise that quickly and adapt than to just carry on delivering the programme we commit to 10 years ago. If we come from the assumption that failure is going to happen, our goal then becomes how can we fail as quickly and cheaply as as possible so we can fail fast yeah fail fast and move on to try something that might work yeah so I'm, I'm a big fan do you ever get the pushback that maybe this is associated with the word experiment that this is not ethical to experiment with beneficiaries vulnerable people because I wonder if that is also a bit of a blockage yes and again it, that comes from the assumption that we're not experimenting if we 
take another route. And it's like, we absolutely are. We're making humongous assumptions based on previous work that's been done, perhaps in a different context or country or with different groups of people. So it assumes that there's one option which is not experimenting. And I would say much better to set up and posit that this is an experiment, build in pauses to reflect, learn and adapt rather than kind of shoving it under the carpet, which we, you know, sometimes feels like we can be. And we have one more. This is one I don't think we have much of an issue with between Lauren and I. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) great. So this is the move from privacy to transparency. Teams that you see and organizations that you see working in a more agile way will be having more conversations like the ones we've just had. What worked well? What didn't work well? Did we deliver against our vision? What else can we do differently? They'll also be talking about how did we work together as a team? What do we need to do differently? And be sharing what they find within their team, within their organization, with other organizations, with the end goal of driving more learning. So it's great to hear that neither of you, <laughs> both yeah. of you seem fairly on board with this one. Why do you look like that? I've got no issue. Okay. I'm not about to raise something. But I was going to say that kind of brings us nicely onto team working together. What you're saying then reminds me of a tool. I think you've got constructive rant, which I really like the idea that there's space for ranting because I think we kind of Uh-oh. need that. What's happened? <laughs> what do you mean space for ranting? We have a podcast. <laughs> this is the space for ranting. It's constructive ranting. <laughs> um, yeah. Tell us more about how you use that tool and to build team, work, trust, that kind of thing. In all of those ways, Lauren, we use it at every opportunity because, again, it comes from the place of we understand they're always going to be things to rant about. We're we're deluded if we think that we run a team. I'm, de- you know, there's I'm sure there's things that Julia has to rant about working with me and vice versa. What are they? Oh, I mean, <laughs> Julia, sorry, Julia. <laughs> so the constructive rant. It's one of my favorite tools because it acknowledges a rant is often required. And what it does is creates a safer, more protected space, often in a two, for each person individually, uninterrupted, to rant about things that are bugging them. The key is for it to be uninterrupted and ranting to be encouraged. You'd be surprised how giving even three minutes, often folks can run out of things to say if you're actually given the space just for three minutes to uninterruptedly rant about something. Quite often, folks will kind of run out of steam by the end of three minutes because we just so rarely get given that space. So after three minutes, I'm free. (laughs) (laughs) Free of what? You know. (laughs) So the next step after you've both in turn, both in turn to ranted at at each other. If she doesn't use all her three, do I get it? (laughs) No. I don't know. I only use my three. (laughs) So your job, if you're listening while Lauren's ranting to you, the only thing you can do, nod, look interested, and say, what else? Mm, give the appearance of being interested. Got it. Same. And then you'd swap roles. And then once you both had a rant, you'd swap back and it would be back to you, Lauren. And your question here to Lauren would be, what would you like instead? Which is the invitation to flip some of those annoyances, those things that are pissing you off and talk about that vision of what you'd like to be different. And those, once you've both popped those down on post-its or scribbled them down together, can start to build all sorts of things. Whether that is a vision for where you want to get to as a team, it could be a charter about how you work together, some agreements about experiments you'll try for different ways that you'll work together. So it's a tool that we use all the time to 
to gather ideas for where you might want to get to with a thing. I have a feeling that this is going to be a thing that Lauren surprises me with at a random time because we had a guest on Pradeep who was talking about the importance of teamworking and planning together. And I think three days later, Lauren just said, meet me here and surprised me with a five hour long strategic planning <laughs> session. So, I just think we're getting very good advice on how to work. <laughs> <laughs> Not only does it give you tangible outcomes to drive towards, it starts to build a space of more psychological safety, of more team trust of more understanding i think often these rants get pushed under the carpet or are maybe saved for the end of the day or a, a quick whatsapp outside of the meeting nice so passive aggressive whatsapp exactly <laughs> so it by creating a space for that it does really build team trust and helps teams to learn more about each other so creating those safer spaces is is a really great way to do that it almost reminds me a little bit of the radical candor movements of like just saying it and not beating around the bush anymore as somebody who maybe is a little bit better at compartmentalizing so i can completely unload a bunch of feedback in a very candid way and then the next moment be like oh cool so like let's go for a drink and like hey how's things um which lauren can attest to because i'm constantly just like being wild and then like the next moment saying okay cool everything's fine right like building that psychological safety through this approach probably involves a little bit of trial and error in terms of what the temperature can look like for different people Definitely. And you've hit on a really core part of agile ways of working, which we haven't dug into that much. Teams that are working in an agile way, if you were to kind of peek in from the outside, you'd see they spend a lot of time talking about how they work together and creating organized places for them to bring certain types of reflections to help create an environment where more radical candor has a place to be. There are places to reflect on how you're working together share feedback with each other and agree how you're going to move forward together. So there's very regular reflection cycles, which again, a real part of how I I see it adding lots of value is that not only is regular reflection built in, but you would agree as a team how and when you're going to share that feedback, agree some actions you're going to take off the back of it so that everyone knows they can prepare for that time. So it, it can feel quite structured, but what it does mean is that everybody knows there is going to be a space every two, three or four weeks to reflect on how you're working together and adapt based on what you've learned. And that adds so much value to organisations and teams. Is it the case that you work with one team in an organisation and then another team or another team and do they share it with other teams? Like, how does that work from like a team and an organisational level? Embedding agile ways of working works best when it's a top down and bottom up approach. So often what happens is a team within a charity will apply these ways of working, have real success, both in terms of the outcomes that they're delivering, but also in terms of team well-being. And we often find just teams can't stop talking to other people about how great it is to work in this way, how it feels different. And then a kind of movement starts to build within the organisation. It does also need buy-in and drive from the top down. So we often aim to try to create both. We have some clients where we're supporting individual teams. So for example, Amnesty International UK, we worked with the digital engagement team, the human rights education team, 
kids' ears pricked up when they heard and saw the changes that were taking place. Mm. And they said, hey, we want in too. So then we supported <laughs> nice. that team to work in a more agile way. Interestingly, it looked quite different. That's really important. We believe at Tilt and the evidence shows that organisations that are truly getting the most value from agile ways of working are embedding it in a way that looks different across the organisation. So what we at Tilt are all about is thinking about Agile as a mindset. It's not about you will do two week sprints with scrum masters and daily standups <laughs> and all of these tools and steps and processes, because that might not work if you're delivering a program on the ground. It might not work if you're in the finance team. Instead, it's all about those principles, that mindset shift that we've been talking about. What do you think are the keys to success? Because when I think about some of the organizations that you've worked with, they're ones I know because I've either worked with those organizations or worked in those organizations. So what's the magic recipe that they're bringing to it or the secret sauce that means that they're able to think a little bit differently about how they're approaching their work? Mm, so I'd say many of those organizations we're working with at a team or directorate level, and I would love them to be embracing more agile ways of working at an organizational level. In order to do that, we need boards that are more digitally minded and understand this way of working. And as you said to your donors that are thinking that way too, there's some work to do there. In terms of the organizations and what they are doing well, in my experience, it's has people can immediately see the value when they notice that what they're doing isn't working as well as it could. Places that might happen is if you've got a burning platform, if like action on hearing loss had basically run out of money and they had to massively reorganize themselves, resize themselves. And so the fire was at their feet. They had to do something different. And so they completely transformed the way that they work. They're now a hundred percent remote organization other than three times a year they get together. They work in an agile way. That can be an opportunity when shit's on fire. The other thing that I notice when Agile works really well is when the organisation is really committed to their vision and the outcomes that they want, they will naturally notice when their ways of working aren't delivering against that. And that often I find individual, there are individuals within our sector who I'm always hunting out and got my ear to the ground for, who naturally take that approach. They're like, I'm not here to fill a role. I am here to deliver my organisation's vision. I'm here to make the world a better place from this perspective or that perspective and I go and find those people and I hook on and I don't let them until they commit <laughs> yeah. to working with us. If you want we can drive the van around and scoop them in. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like it's more leadership that is attuned to what's going on around them but also teams or people who are willing to be self-reflective. Uh oh, sorry. It's another van <laughs> screaming. Um, willing to be self-reflective and see what works, what doesn't work and try to figure out what yeah. the deal is. But then there's also that almost singularity of purpose and directionality that that person needs to feel and share and exemplify that also make these kind of like the ripe conditions, mm, the adopting yeah. of another way of working, which I like. The other thing that often sparks wider agile transformation in a charity is seeing it succeed. In 2020, Prostate Cancer UK delivered March the month fundraising product in an agile way and with no extra budget or headcount brought in £100,000 when they the previous year, they'd bought in £30,000. Oh, wow. So that made the organisation sit up and go, how did you do that? Mm. 
we want that kind of stuff happening right across our organization. So often as not that a specific project often around fundraising because it's got a nice easy to measure pound figure next to it has been really successfully delivered in an agile way makes the rest of the organization sit up and go "Mm, how can we how can we harness that across the organization i mean i think it's reasonable that people want to have a a case study they want to see you know proof of concept so i'm i think that's really reasonable and as you say the fundraising one is really easy because people are just like money yeah where whereas the the outcomes and the change bit is the hardest right and there's a question we're working on with the client about maximizing positive outcomes you know how have they taken what they know and information and then increased it and here's a good demonstration of that it's just not that easy it's really hard and you talked earlier Tia about how you would find it hard to run systematic experiments and it is this is really hard and messy so a lot of what we do at Tilt is take a coaching approach to supporting organizations and teams to do this to increase accountability and focus because it's not yeah it's not as obvious and straightforward as having a nice prince to long-term plan that you've already agreed blinkers on is just going to have to work so yeah it it's tricky but it's more likely to deliver against the outcomes that you're after in this more ever more unpredictable world <laughs> so what have you got to lose people come on <laughs> right <laughs> So, client consultant. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do it. Dish. (laughs) Tell us everything. (laughs) Who are your favorites? Who are the ones that are finding it tricky? We'll bleep it out. If every client could be like Prostate Cancer UK, that would be amazing. They have commitment at the top. They've said, we want to be an agile organization. They have a specific person whose role it is to do that. Leadership have committed loads of time to learning more about this way of working. And we're working in a partnership with them. It really feels like it's not a kind of consultant client relationship almost. So we really love working with them. I think those are the ones. Is that resonating with you? Yeah, definitely. Whenever we sort of step in and we're like outside inside, those are the ones I always find a little bit weird because Mm. I'm like, you're letting me look at all of your finances. Mm. Can we just be friends? (laughs) (laughs) As opposed to like this weird kind of dynamic. It feels like sometimes you become... I mean, the work that we do, you are kind of an auditor to a certain extent. There is kind of like somewhat of an objectivity, I suppose. But I also think that things are much richer when you're engaging as part of a team or a partnership that's, you know, you've got sort of shared values that you're working towards in that little cluster. Because some of the work that we do, we're with them for, you know, six months. Let's do this thing together because we're going to be in this together. So that kind of feature, I think, is is one that we also share worst case we've now been up and running for two years and we've now built up quite a specific list of what we're looking for in an organization or a team in order for us to work with them we get more and more strict about who we will work with we say no to more and more organizations and the types of organizations that we say no to are ones that aren't looking for wider transformation so we will now no longer work with a team who just want to transform their team there must be an opportunity for wider transformation Somebody in the organization has to get it already. Somebody that we're working with because we take a coaching approach. We can't create change purely from the outside in. There must be drivers on the inside already. How do you come to know that? Normally someone will get in touch and say, hey, I've seen you on LinkedIn or I know you through X and X person. 
and we're considering working with you. So we'll set up an initial Zoom chat. And in that chat, we will normally spend most of our time maybe doing a constructive rant, but focusing (laughs) on getting really clear on those outcomes. What asking questions is my favorite question. Imagine we're sat here in a year's time and we're raising a glass to wild success. What would be different? Tell me a story, build me a picture of what will be happening. What will be different? How will you know? And in that conversation, we'll get a good sense of whether this is someone that has a naturally kind of agile approach or gets it already or if there are other people that we could connect with who already get it so that's normally how we'll know we don't always get it right but that's we're kind of looking for someone who already comes from that approach that that mindset that yeah actually we we don't know we do need to experiment is up for letting go of some of that control etc i wonder if we're not just coaches under the guise of doing evaluations and learning reviews because we ask very similar questions about where people want to go and one of the questions that i enjoy asking is how open are you to hearing challenging feedback and then how open is your organization to hearing challenging feedback or changing we don't say no to work we'd like yet we'd like to (laughs) get to that point and we've had a few guests on talk about this transformation of moving to being more selective about the clients that they work with i think that we inherently kind of shed people out of that because like there's two lines in our proposals. One is feminist and rights-based approach. And then the second is forcing high-level stakeholders to rethink something. Mm. I don't know if some of them just skip over that bit, but if they think we're not going to be, well, I'm not going to be confrontational about some of the stuff that they're doing. They're being crazy. In some cases, we haven't even had an interview with someone who's offered us a, a job or a consultancy. So we're missing that kind of screening process in some cases yeah um but you're right i think we do need a couple of questions to kind of yeah we we do have we've got a trello card with a list of questions that we need to know the answer to in order for us to be happy to progress the conversation with a client and we have a couple of steps and what we've started doing is a more iterative approach to proposals so we'll often have a conversation about what success looks like and then send them a draft proposal which doesn't have very much that's specific to the organization before we'll then have another conversation you know once they've got something to pull apart before creating a kind of final proposal for them we are in the very lucky position that there isn't there aren't many other organizations out there supporting charities to work in a more agile way so we often get to set the terms and say this is how we will decide if we want to work together whereas yes so I'm excited for you I know you will get to that stage where you're saying no to organizations and saying this is our our pitch process or the I am it reminds me a little bit of the walking dead oh did you ask him the questions how many walkers have you killed I'm sorry what how many I don't know a lot how many people why? Because they tried to kill me. I love it. It's like that. Yeah, maybe we should start with that question. That will eliminate a few. Yeah. <laughs> Our personal experience at Till is that basically we're worried that if during that pitch process we are very clear about how we work and potentially saying no, that's not how we're going to do it. This is how we're going to do it. You need to do X. 
we worry that it's going to put clients off and nine times out of ten actually we find that they're like no this sounds great where do we sign so I think it's great that you're really clear about what they're going to get although we have worked with organizations who are yes 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 and then when it comes to it they've just been saying yes to try and get something over the line so I think trust your gut yeah, yeah. that's called catfishing yeah. we have an episode <laughs> I think episode four yeah <laughs> listen to the episode on catfishing where you just hear like all the right things but once you get into it it's like we've got a client that I'm dealing with at the moment and I'm like I can't do anything without you giving back to me from our perspective it's get out of it what you put into it and that's the thing that I think is quite hard is that it's not until we've gotten into it that we realize actually there's a little bit of an um, uh, an expectation misalignment I wonder if we shouldn't be doing some constructive rants with some of our clients that'd be hilarious I mean, for three minutes just shut up <laughs> it could be good to build in some regular reflection time with them for both you and them to reflect on how do you think this is going what could we update about how we work together there's a page on our website on tilt's website about how to run a retrospective or reflection session with steps that you could follow yeah we've talked about doing that with some of our clients but for some of them by the time we get to the end we're just like go away yeah just leave (laughs) exactly it really depends also the time that they want to engage with us and vice versa yeah we we often offer to do is like some sort of like post thing Mm -hmm. and yeah mixed mixed results i mean i often feel like we propose a lot at the beginning and then we realize that actually they don't have time and they're not up for it and then it kind of gets you know taken down to Mm. their minimum we do exactly the same as you which is also there's a point at which you notice you know what there's nothing more I can do here so we're just going to stop pushing we're just going to take our foot off the pedal and you call us that's exactly where we're at at the moment I'm like I'll be here when you're ready up yeah. until this point, which of course is the end of this contract. <laughs> I mean, imagine two years' time, we'll get a call like, uh, we're ready now. They'll be like, oh, we've given you the documents. We've finally given you a list of stakeholders to interview. Like, okay, cool. Yeah. We have now, I don't know about you, but we've, we're iteratively building our contract all the time because we're like, this issue happens, so we build it into our contract. And we say now, like, three months after the end, you know, when the contract ends, and that three months after that, that's it, your time's gone, yeah. it's over. Yeah. Because we've had clients that we're just chasing and chasing and chasing and nothing ever happens. Yeah, I think there's some things that I w- I'd want to be building in. like the, But they're not things necessarily that I want them to do, but behaviours I want them to adopt, which feels much harder to contract. <laughs> mm. <laughs> well, that, so that could be something that you build in that you're going to run with them once you start working together. So often we will create a team charter. So you could do a constructive rant at the beginning. Could even be, tell us about what's worked well for you about when you've worked with other consultancies let's create a list of values and corresponding behaviors that we're able to measure if we're doing that's great to be able to come back to it's almost like you've set the expectation of how you're going to work together and the behaviors that you want at the beginning so that when shit's kicking off or they're not answering your emails you can bring them back to that document so we often get teams to do that together when they're going through change so that they will have naturally said at the beginning something about being open about challenge about sharing feedback and so when they're not doing that with each other we can say do you remember you committed to this we didn't write this for you you committed to it come on deliver against it so 
Nice. Yeah. It could be something that's worth doing with the team at the beginning and, and building in. Yeah. Really and then deciding what the punishments will be. <laughs> mm. <laughs> mm. I mean, consequence. Yeah. Well, you I mean, punishment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. For every, every annoying thing they do, they get two less pages in the final report. <laughs> You'll just bleep out like crucial sections. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. We'll just redact all of the bits yes. that respond to the questions that you've asked. <laughs> yeah. Every time great. you're good, you get another one back. Yeah. <laughs> I like this. Me too. I think this is fun. I've been really enjoying this conversation. Yeah, this me, too. me too. Um, for me, I feel like you've just really broken down agile ways of working. I'm leaving this conversation thinking, oh, wow, okay. You know, it's already there. People are already doing little bits of it. It's more reflection. It's it's creating more space to talk about these things, you know, and I'm totally leaving behind the complexity with this Scrum Master that I was thinking it was about. So thank you so much for that. And I hope our listeners also feel the same. So there's some key takeaways for me. I am going back to the beginning around uncertainty and comfort in discomfort. I mean, we're always talking about that. Like it's okay to be uncomfortable. That kind of goes along with the idea of, you know, having more reflective and honest conversations, that transparency within and across teams and within organizations. And I have a feeling that I'm going to, I think I'm going to like these constructive rants. Yeah, me too. I mean, that's a big takeaway. Three minute time limit though. (laughs) Three minutes after Ellen is gone, we're going to be like, (laughs) (laughs) we should record it. Um, But I think, yeah, same around demon mystifying and that's applicable to everybody and I do firmly see exactly what you're describing that there's a possibility to embed anti-racist feminist approaches because you're carving out time to talk about things and I think that that's what we're always saying is just talk about stuff have that impulse and willingness to talk about hard stuff that discomfort piece but the more often that there are spaces to have these discussions I think the, the better. The organizations that, and teams that I've worked in where I felt like the most marginalized are the ones where I just didn't know where to talk about stuff. So I think there's really a nice kind of harmonizing piece there. Yeah. And the mind shifts conversation was really helpful because it just brings it back down to here's the transformation you're looking for from hierarchy to networking and privacy to transparency. And I think for our listeners, well, for me and hopefully our listeners, that's just really something everyone can take away and look for in their own organizations right now. And flag it when it's not. (laughs) Call Eleanor when it's not happening. (laughs) If there was one thing that your listeners could do to start working in a more agile way, they probably are in some ways already, would be to start having regular reflection sessions, whether they're constructive rants or download from my website how to run a retrospective. Just having time individually or in teams to reflect on how they're working together is a total game changer. And really fun and and cathartic. That's my one takeaway. Well, so go to teamtilt.co.uk to check out those resources and we'll put all of this stuff in our show notes. But again, thank you, Eleanor, for just coming here, talking to us. I feel like we're going to be better people. We're going to be more agile. We're going to be well, I just wanted to be better people, but <laughs> as, as a starting point, we're going to be more agile. We're going to be a better team, be as team leader, you as I feel like we should. Um, <laughs> <what>? <laughs> I feel like we should check in again in a year and tell you how it's We gone. should, shouldn't we? Yeah, well, yeah. let's not let a year pass. Okay, six months. <laughs> yeah, maybe three. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Well, thank you so much thank again you. for joining us. I'm Tia. I'm Lauren. I'm Eleanor. And this has been the Journey to Transformation. Bye. 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 
Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Journey to Transformation. Leave us a five-star rating and a written review wherever you're listening to this podcast. Journey to Transformation is written and edited by us, Tia Rogers and Lauren Burrows. Our music comes from Praz Canal.